I'm Dr. Omar Khan. I'm Dr. Shannon Gowland. I'm Dr. Tiffany Dursey. And welcome to Vet Sessions. everyone and welcome back to Vet Sessions. I'm your host Dr. Shannon Gowland and today I'm so happy to welcome Dr. Jocelyn Marchiori in to talk about blood pressure and vasopressor use in primary care. Welcome Jocelyn. Hi thank you for having me. Thanks so much for coming. So before we leap in I'm just going to mention that today's episode is sponsored generously by our beloved OVC Pet Trust. Um, so OVC Pet Trust is a charitable fund based at the University of Guelph's Ontario Veterinary College and it funds a groundbreaking research and discovery to improve companion animal health. In fact, today's guest, Dr. Jocelyn Marciori, is actually sponsored by Pet Trust, is that right? I sure am. They Great. funded the research I did for my DVSC as a part of my residency, so I'm very grateful to Pet Trust and for my research and for this podcast. Amazing. And you did your research in glycopyrrolate use in rabbits, yes, is that right? Yes, we're trying to find a safe dose to use in rabbits because in the literature it's recommended to use dog and cat doses, but okay. With other drugs used in anesthesia, dog and cat doses don't work in rabbits. And we know atropine doesn't work in rabbits because of the atropinase that they have. Right. And so what dose of glycopyrrolate do we use? So that was the objective of my research, to find a safe dose to use in rabbits. Very cool. I dimly remember atropine not working in rabbits, but I haven't done bunny anesthesia in a long time. I don't blame you. It's a bit tricky. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for sure. And then I heard a rumor that there are bunnies looking for homes. Is that right? There are. The rabbits that participated in my study, they're all spayed, vaccinated female rabbits that are less than a year old. They're New Zealand whites, very cute and fluffy. And I have five that need nice homes to go to after participating in our research and they did really well and they're super healthy. Amazing. Okay, that sounds really good. And interested people can email you, is that right? Yes, they can email me. Um, If you Google my name, I'm all over the Guelph website or it's M-A-R-C-H-I-O-J at uaguelph.ca if anyone's interested in adopting a bunny. Amazing. Let us know. Okay, thanks so much. Okay, so let's leap into our topic, which is vasopressors and anesthesia. Um, and I had just had a couple questions to start out first. I was hoping you would sort of tell us how you got into anesthesia in case there are other vet students who want to follow in your yes. footsteps. Yeah, It's a great path to follow, I think. Maybe I'm biased, but <laughs> when I was a first year <laughs> vet student, I thought that I maybe wanted to do research. And so after my first year of vet school, I did some veterinary research at a facility in London And part of the research was anesthetizing patients to have um, MRIs and imaging done. And I was more interested in the anesthesia than the actual (laughs) research part. So then after my second year of vet school, I worked at the OVC um, main hospital doing anesthesia as a summer student, and I really liked it then. So I decided to do an internship after vet school to really make the decision. And as part of my internship, I had to do some general practice. So I was a, a full-fledged vet doing Amazing. general practice. And I I felt like anesthesia was the path for me because I'm maybe not cut out for general practice. And I just love pharmacology and anesthesia. So that's where I am. I'm in my second year of my anesthesia residency. So I'm about halfway done. Um, yeah, and I'll be hopefully an anesthesiologist by 2024. Amazing. Amazing. I think that it's such a cool specialty. I mean, the novelty of propofol still has not worn off for me and I've used it for many years now. Um, but I, I always think that people in anesthesia are so cool because you mm. willingly fling yourselves into these, you know, difficult situations. And I think you're amazing at problem solving. That is part and of And that it, you yeah. seek out problems, like you're willing to put yourself in the path of a problem and you just 
know what tools you have and you're so good at juggling all of the different variables, I think anesthesia is incredible. So good for you. Thank you. Yeah. So um, let's talk a little bit more about our topic today. So would you mind telling me a little bit more about hypotension, kind of give me a definition of where you think animals are hypotensive? For sure. So I think most of us, when we think of hypotension in small animal species, we think about systolic blood pressure being less than 80 millimeters of mercury and then mean blood pressure being less than 60 millimeters of mercury. And I think these numbers come from more human patients that are undergoing Mm. anesthesia where at those values, you can see acute kidney injury and then some arrhythmias due to the lack of blood flow to the myocardium. And these kinds of values aren't really correlated in our veterinary patients to have the same consequences, but that's where I think it comes from. The human patients experiencing these negative sequelae of hypotension. And even though they might not be exactly quite the same, like acute kidney injury, myocardial-based arrhythmias in veterinary patients, that's where the broad numbers of systolic less than 80, mean less than 60 comes from. And I think it's fair to think about hypotension as less than those numbers. Okay. Okay. Fair. It's really nice to have those benchmarks to Mm -hmm. kind of think about. Okay. So, um, so if we have a patient under anesthesia and we're seeing those numbers, um, so blood pressure, um, less than 80 or mean less than 60 is what you just said, I think. Um, Yeah. So, yeah. So, so what are the first steps that we should think about when we have a hypotensive patient? Yeah. So the very first thing I think is to assess the plane of anesthesia. So this is done by looking at the eye position, jaw tone in a cat or a dog. So are the eyes rotated ventral medial? Most patients when they're at an appropriate surgical plane will have their eyes rotated ventral medial and no blink. If the eyes are central and there is a blink, they might be at a lighter plane. If they're central and no blink, deeper plane. And I think you have to assess if that plane is appropriate for the procedure that's happening. So if you're taking dental x-rays and the patient's at a surgical plane, I think it's fair to lighten the plane a bit because that's a bit much for what you're doing. But if you're doing extraction or you're inside the abdomen, a surgical plane is more appropriate. So I think assessing if what depth the patient is at and if that depth is appropriate for what you're doing and if you can reduce the depth. So if your patient is a bit deep for what you're doing, then you can try and reduce the vaporizer to lighten the patient. And that's kind of the first step. It doesn't happen right away where you might see an improvement in blood pressure, but that's the first thing that I think about. Um, The other thing is if your patient also is bradycardic and hypotensive, it's always worth it to consider an anticholinergic, so glycopyrrolate, atropine, Um, just keeping in mind that if you gave an alpha-2 agonist, make sure that they're actually truly hypotensive and that vasoconstriction has worn off before treating with an anticholinergic. But if the heart rate is low and the blood pressure is low, for the most part, it's appropriate to treat with an anticholinergic. And then I think a lot of people will first line do a fluid bolus, usually 10 mils per kilo for 15 minutes is usually the average that I think we teach the students. And this is a good idea, but it only works if the patient is hypovolemic. Mm -hmm. So if your patient is normal volemic, your fluid bolus isn't going to do much. It probably won't hurt the patient, but it's not really as useful. And then if you're doing it with the crystalloid, you have to think about, well, that fluid's going to disperse into the tissues and you only have that fluid in the vasculature for 20 minutes, right? So a fluid bolus is nice in theory, but only if your patient is hypovolemic. And I think ways to assess if it is hypovolemic. If you have a pulse oximeter that's showing you pulse wave, you can see if the amplitudes of the wave are different. And this is especially um, easy to see when you are giving a breath from the rebreathing bag or ventilating, maybe not so common in general practice, but if you see that uh, change in amplitude, then it's 
fair to assume the patient is hypovolemic. If you did some pre-anesthetic blood work, like right the morning of, and they're hemoconcentrated, probably fair to assume they might be a bit hypovolemic. Or if you know the patient well and they're anxious, they're panting, they don't want to drink while being fasted for anesthesia, if they're fasted for water and food, these are kind of fair to assume, but you just have to kind of think about, is the patient truly hypovolemic before I give a fluid bolus? And then the next thing, and kind of step four of all the things we can do before maybe reaching for something else is, how long has it been since pre-medication? So has it been two or three hours since we pre-medicated? Can I add an opioid? What am I doing? In the procedure, like if you're doing dental extractions, in theory, some surgical stimulation will help with those um, blood pressure values. But if not, and it's been two hours since you gave an opioid in your pre-med, you could maybe top off that opioid at half the dose that you gave originally. Um, If you don't want to give an opioid or you feel like analgesia is appropriate, there's always lidocaine. We really like that over at the hospital. So usually a two milligram per kilogram bolus IV, and that'll help with MAC reduction and analgesia. And then if that's still not working in your patient, you still want to decrease the amount of inhalant that you're giving. I think you could even think about giving a ketamine bolus. Um, ideally, if the procedure is longer, you don't want that ketamine given right before recovery. Yeah. It can be a bit dysphoric. <laughs> but if you're having trouble where the patient is too deep, but then when you lighten them, they're experiencing stimulation from dental extraction surgery, whatever it is, you could try a lidocaine or ketamine bolus, so then you can reduce your isofluorine without them being too light for the procedure that you are doing. And usually I, I do one or two milligram per kilogram of ketamine, and then I know it's not always possible in GP, but sometimes a CRI of lidocaine or ketamine can help. Um, so it's always nice to have a syringe pump if you do, um, just to decrease MAC so that you can decrease your inhalant, because inhalant is really what's for the most part, going to cause your hypotension because of that vasodilation. And if you can reduce the amount of vasodilation you're causing, then that'll help your blood pressure. Fantastic. Wow, that is a great list. Okay, so the point of all this is trying to reduce the inhalant and reduce that inherent vasodilation and therefore bring the blood pressure up. And so those are all the strategies that we can think of in order to reduce our inhalant and yet not have our patient wake up and jump off the table. Exactly. Fantastic. Okay, I love it. I love it. So And so now we're at the point where we've done a variety of those things and the patient is still hypotensive. Mm-hmm. So okay. then at that point, it might be time to reach for a vasopressor. Perfect. So just what is a vasopressor? What is a vasopressor? <laughs> so um, officially, it's a drug that causes vasoconstriction. There's different types of drugs that have inotropic or vasopressing effects. So essentially, the patient is very vasodilated because of the inhalant we're giving and also being under general anesthesia, the sympathetic nervous system is inhibited. And then you have kind of the beta two effects take over. And that's why you have such profound vasodilation, even in healthy patients. So we want to kind of counteract that and get some more sympathetic stimulation and get more of those vasoconstriction alpha one effects back on board. So there are many different kinds of vasopressors that we could choose, but depends on the situation. For sure. So um, what vasopressors would you recommend sort of in general practice, primary care situations, as opposed to a more fancy uh, (laughs) actual anesthesia referral hospital situation? Yeah, I think any general practice, it's fair to have one syringe pump. And then there are some vasopressors that you can give as a bolus, but I'll get into that a bit later. So I think dopamine is maybe the one that we think about 
as a first line most commonly. Um, there's dose-dependent effects, so at lower doses, it's acting on the dopamine receptors, which isn't really going to help us with our vasoconstriction. At more medium doses, you're getting the beta effects, and then at higher doses, you're getting the alpha effects, which is causing the vasoconstriction, which is what we want to improve our blood pressure. Okay. So I'll, I'll talk more about specific doses, but dopamine is given as a CRI, and it's important to give it at the doses where you're causing vasoconstriction as opposed to at the low doses. The dopamine receptors are really going to help your hypotension. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. And then um, the, my favorite is norepinephrine, um, which is a very um, profound alpha agonist, alpha 1 and alpha 2. And then there's some um, mild beta effects as well, but typically the alpha effects are dominant. And this is kind of the drug we think about for more critical patients because it does have such a profound vasoconstricting effect. And I personally reach for it most often, but I'm usually anesthetizing patients that have a higher ASA status than yeah. I would hope you would experience in GP, but that's my favorite. And then there's dobutamine, which is a um, beta-1 um, primarily, but you can also get some beta-2 and even some alpha-1 um, effects at higher doses. There's no effect on alpha-2, which is um, nice. And then it's used to improve low cardiac output um, in patients that have reduced myocardial function. And then there's phenylephrine, which is kind of fun because you can use it as a bolus or as a CRI. Okay. So that's kind of nice for general practice if you don't have a syringe pump. Um, and it's very potent alpha-1 um, adrenergic receptor effects, and there's no effect on beta at all. So similar to norepinephrine besides no beta at all. And then lastly is ephedrine. So ephedrine is acting differently than the other ones I've just mentioned. So it has both direct and indirect sympathomimetic action. So it acts as an agonist at those receptors, the alpha-1 and alpha-2, and it uses endogenous catecholamines for that effect. The only thing is you have to consider tachyphylaxis. So if you give multiple doses, you're not going to get a, a dose-dependent increase in effect. Okay. So it might be you give it once and then that's it. Um, but that's a nice one to have as well because it's given as a bolus instead of a CRI. Okay, okay. So um, so how can we give each one then? So some of them are CRIs and some of them are boluses, yes. it sounds like. So dopamine, norepinephrine, and dobutamine are given as constant rate infusions. So most accurately done with a syringe pump. This is maybe my plug that everyone gets a syringe pump for Christmas because <laughs> it's a really nice thing to have. And it, yeah. even if you're not using it for presser support, it's nice to have for any other CRIs like lidocaine or ketamine. Nice to have. Um, it is possible to calculate your dose rates into a mil per hour. Okay. So, for example, like uh, dopamine, we give it as microgram per kilogram per minute. And you can do the math with the concentration of dopamine you have and convert it into a mils per hour. And there are calculators online and all that. And we teach our vet students to do this kind of math too. For sure. Um, so it is possible. It's more tricky to change and titrate because you have to kind of recalculate each small dose into a different decimal mil per hour. Okay. And then... Less ideally, I know sometimes dopamine is given as a drip because it does come in a bag. The problem with this is that it's really hard to titrate because if you're trying to give like a decimal mils per hour, it's really hard to get that exact drip. So I don't necessarily recommend it, but I understand not everyone has fluid pumps and syringe pumps. So it is possible if you calculate it into a mil per hour and then a drip rate. Okay. But ideally, syringe pumps are how we're giving um, norepinephrine, dopamine, and dobutamine. Phenylephrine and ephedrine, you can give as a bolus. Phenylephrine is nice because it's a bolus or 
a CRI. So those are nice ones to have if there's no syringe pump available or maybe what you do first before starting a CRI if your clinic doesn't have the capabilities of easily doing a constant rate infusion. But again, like drip rates are hard, especially in small patients. So yeah. it might be nice to get one. <laughs> that sounds great. Okay, that's definitely on my Christmas list. Yes. I think we actually lent one to another department, which I will be getting back shortly. Yes, so get that back. <laughs> perfect, perfect. Okay. And then, okay, so did you want to tell me a little bit more about how you adjust the dose? Like what yeah. had the starting dose and how you know sort of how to titrate? For sure. So I'll start with dopamine because that's, I think, what most people think about as first-line presser support. So we want to bypass the low-dose dopamine effects and even the beta effects and go straight to higher doses. Okay. So typically for dopamine, we start at 5 microgram per kilogram per minute. And that's micrograms, not milligrams, just to be okay. so clear. And per minute, not per hour. Okay. And um, I usually will go up to 10. I know some anesthesiologists will go as high as 15. But okay. for me, if I'm starting at 5 microgram per kilogram per minute, the effect should be very quick. And okay. so if you're not seeing a change in blood pressure over a couple of minutes, then that, at that point I switch to a different presser, usually norepinephrine. So speaking of norepinephrine, also in microgram per kilogram per minute, and usually I'll start at 0.1. And I don't know that there's an upper limit because for really sick septic patients, I've gone up to 0.8. Okay. I don't necessarily recommend jumping up that high usually i'll start at 0.1 and then again the effect should be pretty quick that you see changes and if not then i just kind of titrate the dose up until i see a drop in my blood pressure or sorry a drop in my heart rate okay so i titrate up until a drop in heart rate because it'll be reflex bradycardia from the profound vasoconstriction of norepinephrine gotcha so that's norepinephrine 0.1 microgram per kilogram per minute, and then I titrate up from there. Okay. And then dobutamine um, is also microgram per kilogram per minute, and it's the same as dopamine, and usually we start at 5, 5 to 10 microgram per kilogram per minute. And then phenylephrine as a bolus, 5 to 10 microgram per kilogram initially. You could start low and then see how that works, and if you need to go higher in 10, 15 minutes, you could do that. And then the CRI is 0.1 to 0.5 microgram per kilogram per minute. So similar to norepinephrine. And it makes sense because phenylephrine and norepinephrine are similar alpha um, agonists. And then ephedrine, the bolus is 0.06 milligram per kilogram. So that's the only one that we do in milligram per kilogram Okay. ephedrine. And that's um, 0.06 milligram per kilogram IV, all of these were giving IV. Yes. I hope that was obvious. Um, but yeah, all IV and then ephedrine. I don't know that it would be worth it to do multiple doses, again, because of the tachyphylaxis that you're going to see. But a uh, dose of ephedrine, the problem with giving a bolus is now you're stuck. You can't really titrate. If you get an increase in blood pressure and heart rate because of the ephedrine, you're kind of stuck there until it wears until off. It wears Whereas off, with yeah. the CRI, it's nice. You can turn down, titrate a bit, but... Ephedrine is a nice drug to have if you don't have a syringe pump. Okay. Okay. That sounds great. Okay. So then for dopamine, then if you use that one, then you get the increase in heart rate coming, uh, sorry, the increase in blood pressure. Mm -hmm. And then at what point are you kind of leveling it off? Well, if I start with dopamine and I've gone up to 10 mm -hmm. and I don't see an improvement in my blood pressure, I think for me personally, it's worth it to switch okay. to norepinephrine. And sometimes I'll even start with norepinephrine, even though it's a bit of a profound vasopressor compared to dopamine, but 
again, the patient population that I anesthetize is usually a bit more sick, higher ASA status. But I think for elective dentals, like anything that is mostly healthy otherwise, like ASA 3 and below, I think it's really fair to start with dopamine. And then if that doesn't work, again, go back to the beginning. Like, can you reduce your depth? All that stuff that I talked about before. Okay. And then once we get the effect that we want, Mm -hmm. do you tend to maintain them at that dose or? Yeah, I think if you're at like normal pressures under anesthesia, usually anything above 70 is really nice. Um, Again, patient dependent. It's not just a hard and fast number. Um, I usually maintain it. I might try to titrate down to see if we could do a lower dose to still maintain blood pressure. Um, That being said, sometimes patients will overshoot and they'll be hypertensive Mm. and then you titrate down. But the the nice thing about the CRIs is that when you turn down the rate, it's pretty quick that they're getting a change at the receptor level because it acts so quickly and yeah. it goes away so quickly. And then pretty much as soon as you turn it off within a minute almost, they're gone from the receptor. So if you don't like how hyper hypertensive the patient is, you just turn it down and play around from there. But Fantastic. I love instant results. Yes, <laughs> yeah. me too. That's good. That's good. So we can see exactly what we're doing. Okay, mm-hmm. amazing. So and then so you've given a list of different ones. Um, I assume there are different like sort of patient considerations in terms of which you choose for which patient, like whether they have heart disease or Oh yes, yeah. of course. Like okay. Heart disease is kind of the number one thing I think about. So for example, Um, patients with DCM, like dogs with DCM that have really poor contractility or really advanced mitral valve disease and poor contractility because of that, poor systolic function, dobutamine can be really nice to help with the contractility. Um, That will help improve blood pressure. Um, That being said, like a cat with HCM, Mm -hmm. it's the opposite because it has poor diastolic filling in the heart. You don't want to ask that heart to work faster when it can't really fill all the way because of that hypertrophic myopathy. So for cats, there's been studies um, that say that phenylephrine is nice for cats with HCM, um, but norepinephrine is very similar to phenylephrine. So personally, I would put a cat with HCM on norepinephrine. That would be my go-to just to, and then reducing the heart rate is nice as well. So if you get norepinephrine at a dose that decreases your heart rate from the reflex bradycardia from the vasoconstriction, that's nice for cats. Any septic patient, which I see quite a few of, like... Happily, we do not. Yes, I'm happy to hear that. Hopefully you wouldn't, but just in case. Yeah. um, If someone works somewhere where they might see some emergencies and you do have a patient that's really not well, a GDV, um, a dog that's in dystocia, that kind of thing, norepinephrine is really nice for septic patients because the vasodilation is so profound. And then norepinephrine is kind of the only thing that will work. And sometimes even that doesn't work depending on how sick the patient is. But dogs with DCM and mitral valve disease, dobutamine is a nice one to use because it helps with contractility. And then cats with HCM, I use norepinephrine or phenylephrine, very similar. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, that sounds great. And then what if nothing works and we've got a horribly hypotensive patient? Hopefully we're not going to be in that situation. Hopefully not. It happens though. I think especially, again, for the patients I anesthetize, sometimes they're just so sick and compromised that despite my pressors and even multiple pressors and everything else, like blood products even, they're still hypotensive. And of course, if there's hemorrhage, sometimes I prefer hypotension, so we're not losing all the blood. I've just returned to them. That being said, I I think in general practice, patients with lower ASA, ASA 1, 2, 
maybe even three if you have like a diabetic patient with some comorbidities, heart disease, that kind of thing. Hopefully all of the things that we've talked about, something will work. So adjusting your depth, like a fluid bolus if they're hypovolemic, um, chopping up an opioid or something else to reduce MAC, lidocaine, ketamine, and then a presser with our dopamine. Hopefully something will work. If nothing works, which I feel like is rare, but if nothing works, it might be worth it to consider breaking up the anesthetic into multiple shorter procedures Mm -hmm. just because then it'll be less hypotension for less amount of time. And then maybe the second procedure, consider a different pre-medication, that kind of thing. But I hope that something will work in the population that we're doing in general practice. But I have seen it in the patients I anesthetize where nothing works. And sometimes you just have to know that you're doing the best for the patient. You've given intervention to help support cardiovascular function. And if they're getting life-saving surgery, you just kind of have to clench your jaw and wait till it's over and then make sure the patient is having appropriate post-op care in an ICU where they can receive like the kinds of follow-up that they need after having a hypotensive anesthesia. For sure. For sure. No, definitely, especially with our dentistry patients, we definitely will call a procedure shorter or, you know, maybe have them come back for some of those extractions and do, we do adjust our protocol the next time if need be, but sometimes they're just so cold and they've been under for too long. So that's another good point. Like keeping them normothermic helps because your drugs don't work as well if the patient is cold. For sure. That's another thing to think about, but that's nice to break it up if they're struggling with their blood pressure. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so this is fantastic information. I'm wondering if for my brain, we could sort of run through a case together just to pull all of these things together. Would that be okay? Okay, amazing. So let's say we have a seven-year-old chihuahua, say, in for a dentistry. So typical dental patient, healthy apart from dental disease, um, standard pre-med, say Dexmed Hydro, Propofol IV, um, and we have done the dental x-rays, we're getting ready to place our dental blocks, and the blood pressure is starting to drop. So at this point, we've done no interventions, we're on standard doses of everything. Mm -hmm. So just really quickly review step one, and go through those wonderful steps again. Yes, I look at the patient's depth, so I'm looking at the mouth because we're about to do dental blocks, how's the jaw tone? Is it really loosey-goosey? There's no um, clenching of the jaw. It's easy to open the mouth. How are the eyes? Chihuahuas have nice buggy eyes, so you can see where their position is. If the eye is more ventral medial, no blink, seems like a good enough plane. But if the the eyes are central and you have like no jaw tone at all and you're just about to do a block and you're not extracting anything imminently, then I think maybe turning down your vaporizer and seeing if that helps lighten the patient's anesthetic depth a bit and then that won't immediately help your blood pressure but that's kind of step one that I do okay and then next I would say okay how long has it been since we gave the pre-med yeah has it been two hours with you know you get the catheter in and then you have to go do something else and the patient maybe you do the cleaning before and so the tech's been doing that I would look and I think it's fair for surgical extractions or anything if it's been two hours since your pre-med I am you could think about topping up your opioid, especially if you're planning on doing extractions. If you're not sure you want to top up the opioid because you're not sure you're doing extractions yet, then I think, oh, can I, the dental blocks might help reduce our depth, right? So we do the dental blocks. Can you turn down the depth even more on the vaporizer? And then if you turn down the vaporizer and you notice the patient is a bit light for what you're doing and they're reacting and their heart rate's going up and their blood pressure's not really coming up, sometimes when they're, getting surgical stimulation or any kind of stimulation from 
removing teeth, that might help your blood pressure. True. But if if not, you could try reducing the MAC of the inhalant by lidocaine bolus or I like ketamine sometimes. It's nice, especially if you're finding the patient is really not liking what you're doing, but they're still so hypotensive when you turn up the inhalant. Let's add something else instead of inhalant. So lidocaine bolus, two milligram per kilogram, ketamine bolus, one to two milligram per kilogram. Love it. Maybe not both at once. Try one. See if that helps, then the other. And then you can repeat those as necessary if it's been half an hour and you're still having the same issues. And then the next step is, what's the heart rate? Yes. If the heart rate is low, and we gave dexmedetomidine, I imagine the heart rate probably is low. Mm-hmm. But if we're now hypotensive, that means the vasoconstriction has gone away, but the bradycardia persists. And so can we give an anticholinergic? If that's not contraindicated, then I think... That might be nice to do some glycopyrrolate. That's my go-to or atropine, whatever you're comfortable with. Great. And then if all of that still isn't working and you can't lighten the patient because then they're reacting to your extractions or even your dental blocks, then maybe we think about doing a presser. Great. Assuming the patient isn't hypovolemic and you're like, hmm, this dog never drinks. It's super anxious. Maybe we could do a gentle fluid bolus. And you can do all these things at once, right? Turn yeah. on the vaporizer fluid bolus and start a presser. Because if they are hypovolemic, it's nice to kind of have a blood, like a presser to help with their hypovolemia as well. So perfect. Yeah. And I, for this patient, I would probably start with dopamine. I think in general practice, assuming that's what you have, if you don't have a syringe pump um, to give the dopamine or a fluid pump to give it as a mil per hour dose, then maybe ephedrine or phenylephrine or something, depending on how profound the hypotension and if you're turning down the vaporizer and all your other activities haven't helped. Fantastic. I love it. I love it. Thank you for drawing all that together. It helps me just to review one more time. So that sounds really good. And then um, lastly, what about cats versus dogs? You already touched on this a little bit, but do you want to just wrap up about kind of the differences? Mm -hmm. Because there are all the some. Yes. Cats are special, aren't they? Yeah. I I love cats, but they are special. Me too. I'm definitely a cat lady and (laughs) cats are special when it comes to anesthetizing them. I think in terms of pressers, I consider cats the same as dogs. Doses are the same. Everything is the same. The only thing different is the more likely heart disease in cats. Yeah. So HCM versus in dogs, most likely mitral valve disease or DCM. So just thinking about a cat, I probably would never do dobutamine if you don't know that it has HCM or not, because that's contraindicated. Okay. Um, and then just in terms of monitoring blood pressure in cats, I know there's some some thought about what the Doppler measurement means in a cat versus a dog. And all kinds of indirect measurements of blood pressure aren't quite as accurate as direct blood pressure, so keeping that in mind. But when I have direct blood pressure, like an arterial catheter in a cat, I'm looking at direct blood pressure and I measure on the Doppler, it's not close to systolic or mean. It's kind of in the middle. Oh, and interesting. I know, yeah, and I know sometimes people think that it means mean on a cat, yeah. the Doppler measurement, yeah. and it's not true. It's not quite systolic either the way we think about it in dogs but it's not quite accurate to the mean either so that's the only thing I would mention for cats like a Doppler in a dog we think about this is a systolic measurement and so if it's less than 80 okay we're hypotensive and in a cat if it's 80 you're happy because it's oh it's the mean but not it's not quite that simple okay and there's many a paper that compare the indirect blood pressure measurements to direct with arterial catheters and just in my experience when I have an art line in a cat and I'm using Doppler for noise to hear the heart rate it's not quite exactly accurate so I think just think about that when you're measuring a Doppler you 
you you don't need to necessarily think about it. It's definitely systolic. Okay. Because it's not, and it's not me neither. So somewhere in between. So that okay. makes it, cats a bit more challenging. Good to know. But otherwise, I the presser doses, I do the same for cats and dogs. Okay. Amazing. Amazing. And perhaps what we could do is uh, put together a little chart, if that's okay. Mm-hmm. And we could put that on our Instagram. For sure. Just so that people can have. The doses. Um, yes. Yeah. Have yes. the doses without having to wildly scribble them down. Okay. Fair enough. If you don't mind. I Thank don't mind. You. Okay. That is great. That is amazing. Thank you so much. I love when we have practical advice to give to people and that they can listen to a podcast and then take it and run with it. So thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah. And I think we'll all feel a lot more comfortable using these uh, vasopressors for sure, especially for our long, long dental procedures. Long, long dentals. Yeah. So um, thanks also to our listeners um, for spending the time with us. We really appreciate you um, listening to us. And if you have suggestions for future podcasts or you have a clinical question you'd like to ask um, and have answered, then please email us at vetsessions at hotmail.com. Please also follow us on Instagram at vetsessions. And don't forget that if you know of someone who can provide an excellent home for a wonderful bunny uh, to also email Dr. Marchiori. Thank you so much, Jocelyn. Thank you. Take care.